0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, it's great to see you. Happy New Year. How you doing? Good. Hey, Andrew, it's great to be back. Happy New Year to you and all the uh, listeners out there. That's right. Happy New Year to the listeners. Happy New Year to Tashi. I think 2023 is going to be a big year for the Sharp China podcast, so I'm excited to get rolling here. Um We have a lot of news to catch up on. We're going to have fewer questions from the listeners. We'll get back to those next week. You can send questions to email at sharpchina.fm. You can also leave questions in the comments in Bill's open thread on cynicism, which he posts every Friday, Uh, and we'll have a lot of fun. It'll be more of a mailbag episode next week. We've gotten some good questions already. Uh, For now, though, let's start with the continuing reopening across China which was probably the biggest story in the world for the past few weeks. And when we last talked, China was sort of in the first inning of the reopening and it wasn't clear exactly what it was going to look like. We're now about a month into this process. What do we know about where things stand right now? Like, do we know whether the worst phases of this are over?
1: Uh, It depends where you are. It looks like the uh, uh, new cases have peaked in some of the major cities like Beijing and Shanghai, um, but it is spreading. I mean, it's all over the country. And, you know, certainly even though cases, maybe new cases have peaked, uh, there is always the lag between getting sick and getting in the folks then who unluckily get really sick or die tragically. And so um, it it's not clear that they've peaked in terms of the number of serious illnesses or deaths in some of the big cities. And uh, now we're heading into the annual uh, migration for Chinese New Year for the Lunar New Year where people uh, migrant workers head home and in a normal year it's hundreds of millions of people and so the the expectation is that it's and that, that migration really starts the Lunar New Year this year I think is the 21st, 22nd of January the mm-hmm. migration usually starts within two to four weeks before that so there are already a lot of people on the move so the assumption is that the, um, the virus is already spreading into rural areas I mean the reality is it's all like the key word I use was assumption, or it appears, or it seems like, is because there's no good data. the The Chinese government is no longer announcing new cases. They officially, like, I think less than a dozen people have died from COVID, um, which is it's a joke, not a yeah. joke. It's it's a tragedy. It's but it's just absolutely absurd. And so, uh, people are flying blind. Clearly, from uh, just friends, uh, friends, family members from. Other anecdotal sources and videos going around, a lot of people tragically have died, and you know it 's going to be i think uh, there's going to be there's a lot of pain and suffering right now. I mean the China unfortunately is going through what most of the rest of the world went through they They delayed it they were able to defer it for two and a half years, with the exception of Wuhan at the beginning in uh, two thousand and twenty but now they 're dealing with what we you know we still have a few hundred people die, a day dying here i mean it's just it, this thing doesn 't seem to go away and China. I think Omicron finally just overwhelmed all their defenses and they had no choice but to open up. And so now we're just, just going to have to grind through it. And, and, you know, the hope is a lot of people recover, they get some immunity. You're starting to see signs of life um, and activity returning in the big cities. And yeah. um, so it's, it's very much a mixed bag, but it's really frustrating because the Chinese government is, is really, is reverting to its usual sort of no transparency or little transparency mode.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. You wrote about this, about the jarring juxtaposition of news stories about the reopening and all these new year's celebrations. And like, there's also many, many stories about the global implications of this shift. And then there are other stories about overcrowded crematoriums and deaths and just staggering numbers of infections. Like back in, December, it was reported or it was announced by the government that there were 37 million infections in one day. So it's you see China going through what the rest of the world went through, but on a scale that is unlike anything else in the entire world. And um, it's Just a reminder, you know, like one out of every five or six stories is a reminder that this is a human tragedy and hopefully the Chinese people could get through it as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, no, that's the hope. And I mean, when you said that the government didn't actually announce that there have been 37 million cases, those were leaked minutes from a, a meeting of the National Health Commission that appeared to have been verified that said, I think, right before Christmas the Friday before Christmas was that number thirty-seven million, and to that point, they said there had already been over two hundred million people who tested positive. So. Wow. Um, you know, my mistake. Thing is, no, it's, no, no, no. It
0: seemed out of character to to have them announcing yeah, anything.
1: And, and and I think they're not, you know, they they got as part of the switch from dynamic zero COVID to dynamic let it rip uh, over a month ago, you know, they got rid of most of the testing. So those numbers are also just estimates based on sample sizes, not actual, totally accurate data. So no, it, it just, it's just going to rip through the country. And the hope is that, that you know, they, they reclassified or they sort of started talking about it as it should be called um coronavirus cold to sort of talk about how with omicron it's a much it's a much less dangerous uh, virus you know so the hope i think what they're saying is that the death rate should be below 0.1% um but you know if it's a billion people get it that's still close to a million people yeah and it's not clear that that number is accurate. We just don't know. Uh, I think what's been quite shocking to some people was to see how quickly the health system in a place like Beijing, which has the best medical infrastructure in China, was was um, so quickly so heavily stressed, and how many people, mostly elderly, have been dying, including a fair number of um, sort of elite retired Beijingers, people who were had been you know relatively senior officials in government or luminaries in the arts or academia or the sciences, and it's just it's it's brutal. And it you know, we have to see how that I mean, we don't know how it's gonna play out. But I think that the big fear and something the government this week has has been, you know, they they just they made the switch and there are various theories about why. Um mm-hmm. I don't we don't have a great answer exactly why, but I think one of the one of the main reasons was basically they just Omicron was already spreading so quickly that by the by early November there was it was impossible to stop it. So it was a recognition of reality. But they um, they didn 't do anything to stock up for fever reducing benefic- medications or pain relievers or um, they just they just didn 't prepare they didn 't prepare people and so now they 're scrambling to prepare the rural areas and to push out you know they 've this week they pushed out a new guideline on traditional Chinese medicine formulas that can be used to help people and yep. sort of reduce discomfort and and quicken recovery. But they're doing that because they don't, you know, they don't have enough Paxlovid. You know, there's still not enough people who are vulnerable who are vaccinated. The people who are vaccinated and boosted tended to have been boosted a while ago, and it's not clear that the vaccine is that efficacious against Omicron. So it's just it's a it's a mess, quite honestly. And we're all just sort of grasping at, sort of trying to figure out what's going on and looking for various bits of alternative data to serve as a proxy for. Sort of how many people are sick, how many people are dying, is the economy starting to recover, et cetera. And it's just, it's just, it's, I mean, again, but we, you know, you brought this up earlier. It's really, you know, it's easy to abstract away into talking about economic data or, but, you know, there's there's just so many human tragedies underway right now. It's really, it's heartbreaking to see, you know, again, another country have to go through this and one that I think most of the people there really believe that they had been able to escape this. And yet it comes for everybody at some point.
0: Yeah, well, and, and as we move forward, I mean, the lack of information is beginning to upset other countries around the world. I read that the WHO is frustrated here. And and I just wonder whether that will alter the Chinese government's behavior. And if not, then what the rest of the world will end up doing. Like, I think that's going to be something to watch over the next few weeks. Well,
1: you have a a handful of countries, um, more and more by the day, who are requiring, you know, to the border, the China, border with China is effectively opening this weekend. They're getting rid of the all the restrictions officially, even though some of them have already dropped off. You'll still be required to have a negative PCR test within 48 hours of getting on a flight to China. And now a bunch of countries are saying, including the U.S., are saying that that uh, travelers from the PRC will need a. F- PCR tests within 48 hours to travel to their countries. And of course the Chinese government is extremely They're upset pissed. by this saying it's, yeah. you know, targeting us and, you know, and, and, and and the problem is, and, and the reality is I don't think it does much uh, in terms of stopping the spread, especially when you look at the U S and, you know, there's the spread of this other new variant that's, you know, all over Northeast, probably all over DC at this point. And, but it's, it's, I think also it's, it's a reflection of two things. One is the concern that, because the Chinese are not sharing data in the way that even the, the WHO would like, it's, it's, they're not able to do the kind of surveillance that would let them see more quickly the possibilities of any new variants arising in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second is just that, and though these, this, these new testing requirements, it's not clear that they'll actually solve that problem. But the other bit, I think, is just frankly, a lot of governments are frustrated with the PRC and frustrated with the lack of transparency three years into the pandemic. I was
0: going to say from the very beginning. So, yeah. so yeah, you know, sort of like a
1: and, and every, you know, countries have domestic politics, and so politically, the politicians need to need to look to be doing something even if what they're doing doesn't actually do anything. Because what, what are we going to, you know, someone shows up, they, they, they test negative, they get on a plane to the U.S., then they test a negative, you know, the day or they did, when they arrive, what are we going to do? Put them in quarantine? We don't do that here.
0: Right. Right? It, it's not, it, it's just like, and, and you know, It's there's- also not going to stop the spread of, variants like three years now, into the pandemic we should understand that that sort of testing requirement doesn't actually accomplish anything
1: but so but but it's just it's just more this sort of growing frustration with the with the with the government of beijing and also just the you know and then yesterday the chinese foreign ministry basically effectively threatened retali you know retaliatory measures against countries that require this one of course like What are they going to do? Stop travel like they've been doing for the last three years? I mean, it's just like it's just it's just this sort of kind of unscientific, politically driven, unconstructive tit for tat. But ultimately, I mean, again, China could make this not be happening if they were sharing all the information they have.
0: Yeah, well, and it's interesting because I think the Chinese government, I mean, I'll read the quote here. We believe that the entry restrictions adopted by some countries lack scientific basis and some excessive practices are even more unacceptable. Um, that's a case where it seems like it's the right message, but the Chinese government is the wrong messenger after what they've been doing over after- the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> like So um, yeah. it's kind of a tough spot, but... I, I hope that the fears related to variants o- are ultimately overblown um, and we'll just have to wait and see. That's the th- It is certainly unsettling sitting here knowing how many people are being infected across China and knowing that we are basically flying blind as to what that is doing to change right. the disease. And, and so. the
1: Chinese side say they are uploading some samples to this genetic surveillance database. But Based on the comments from the WHO on Wednesday, that they don't think it's enough. Yeah, I mean the Chinese can rail all they want against the U.S. or the EU, but if the if the WHO is also basically saying you're not doing enough, then they need to take it more seriously. And, and you know this is a, this is just a constant theme in the pandemic. And you know the problem I think for the for the Chinese government is that full transparency, accurate data, even releasing it to 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 the WHO, it'll get out. And it's a domestic problem then because it's it's even though most people assume everybody's got it, I mean, there's a reason they're not disclosing the number of deaths. There's a reason mm-hmm. they've set the sort of classification for a death from COVID in China to an ex, like an extremely narrow set of criteria that basically mean that that almost nobody officially dies from COVID. And so um nobody believes it, but that 's what they're going with but so so transparency is a problem domestically too if they really let people understand the scale. Sense. i mean yeah. you just and people know i mean just there 's these awful videos of you know bodies in bags stacked up in makeshift morgues you know terrible stories about yes. can 't get cremated for a month um just just you know people have their relatives have died and they're in their home their bodies are in their homes for days or over a week because there are no there' are no hearses there're no ambulances to come pick them up i mean it's just it's just heartbreaking Mm -hmm. and you just wonder like we've all you know this has happened you know you remember scenes from manhattan in 2020 right and scenes from india during the delta wave the thing is i think is the problem for the Chinese government is is up until november this was never gonna this was the the whole sort of triumphant propaganda around the, the communist party's covid response was how we're different it won't happen to us and now it's all happening to them too
0: yeah. Well, and they're beginning to blame the West.
1: Well, I think, you know, they're they're blaming sort of the, you know, unfair Western media coverage of people focusing on, you know, the, the the reports of long lines of crematoria and body bangs and makeshift morgues. I mean, even though, you know, anyway, it's it's just but I think it's it's a it's a sort of a common sort of fallback for them is if things get really bad, then just blame blame the U.S. blame yeah. the West, but really blame the U.S.
0: Yeah, well, it's an unbelievable tragedy. Um, And I I did have one question on the economic side of all this. Uh, I'll read this note from Bloomberg. China is pausing massive investments aimed at building a chip industry to compete with the U.S. as a nationwide COVID resurgence strains the world's number two economy and Beijing's finances. People familiar with the matter said that top officials are discussing ways to move away from costly subsidies that have so far borne little fruit and encouraged graft and American sanctions. So the Chinese government was set to spend one trillion yuan, the equivalent of uh, 245 billion U.S. dollars, so it was a pretty serious commitment. Um, what's your reaction to a report like that? I mean, this is a sharp so, departure from everything we've heard.
1: Yeah. So I mean, there was I think I think it was Bloomberg a few months ago reported this was happening. It was never actually confirmed that they were going to push out this trillion revenue, which is it's actually like a hundred and forty something million dollars thereabouts. Um, it, it was never officially confirmed. Doesn't mean it wasn't happening, but. Now Bloomberg saying it's not happening. It's possible that they had to do a U-turn. You know, The article from Bloomberg suggests because they don't have the money. And I think that a lot of the, the decisions around COVID and the, the shift in policies can be traced back to or have have as one of the big contributing factors, the fact that a lot of governments in China just are running out of money, the local governments, mm. because of all the the, the the combination of the decline in economic activity. As well as the the various like tax cuts, fee cuts to help people get through COVID, and then all the costs imposed on them uh, to deal with COVID. So, it, so I mean, I think the short answer is it's too early to tell. You know, the China they they need a response to the really pretty harsh sanctions the U.S. put on the the PRC semiconductor industry. You know, they've had this. Big thing called like the big fund, this chip fund. Over the years, it's that's mm-hmm. had billions of dollars to invest, and is now in the middle of a big graft investigation where uh, a whole bunch of the top executives are um, under investigation because you know they would they get their money, they got to pick winners, and you know the the rumor for a long time was there was a lot of corruption, and you would set up a side company and they take kickbacks, etc. Um, there was also, I think, we, what I also heard was what what spurred these investigations last summer was that there was a review of the progress of sort of how China was doing in terms of breaking the, some of the strangleholds that the U.S. has over the Chinese ship industry, and and the, the the officials realized that they'd been effectively lied to, and that the progress has been exaggerated, uh. and that they were further behind than expected, and so it was like we just you know this is not working. And you know these people have led us astray. And oh, by the way, of course they're corrupt because there's so much money. So I think they're still struggling with what the best response is to kickstart domestic semiconductor development. Yeah, um, but it but it's there's no question. It, it, the, the 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 broader backdrop is that these export control sanctions the Biden administration put in place near the end of last year. Um, are really the most significant action in the technology area that the U.S. has probably ever done with China. And, and they, really, they really are quite meaningful in terms of um, the, the challenges they've created for China being able to build up its own semiconductor industry, at least in the short term.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know what to make of a report like this, because on the one hand, it could be an indication that the government's finances are worse than we realized. And and that's why they're pulling back. On the other hand, it could be just specific to this story where, as you said, if if the programs are bearing little fruit and there's all sorts of corruption investigations uh, related to it, then I, I certainly understand pressing pause but all last year it was framed as an existential issue for No, it the still future. is.
1: It it still is. It's just gonna be I think uh working through exactly how to address it in a way that doesn't um that is affordable and doesn't just and works because because yeah. I think they they spent a lot of money and it hasn't gotten them the kind of return they wanted.
0: Do we have any sense of, of when the economy might start to see a rebound after reopening? Some of the data from December was not encouraging. No, but, the data
1: but... so far from, for December has not been great. I mean, the problem always in the first couple of months of the year in China is that the Lunar New Year holiday, which usually falls sort of third or so week of January into maybe late January, early February, depending on the, the, the lunar cycle... Uh, The the data for the first two months is always a mess because you have Mm -hmm. a lot of factories that have to close down because their workers go home. Uh, It just, it, it, it really is. um, It's going to be hard to get a very clear and I think comprehensive picture until probably March or, or even into the beginning of Q2. Certainly the expectation is that you'll see a jump in services activity, like going to restaurants, retail sales, travel this month into February as people, you know, because generally around the new year's people spend a lot of money on those things. We'll see. Yeah. Right. I mean, again, it looks like if you, you know, there's folks just because the data around like the cases, the case rate, it's it's so bad, you know, you've got folks who are looking at alternative data like Bloomberg did something with subway data where they looked at the subway usage in, I think 11 top cities and sort of charted, which cities look like they're suddenly recovering, um, you know, because there's more ridership. You, You can certainly see it, you know, you, you see, activity on the streets is picked up in places like Beijing, Shanghai. I mean, a lot of people, you know, if they didn't get sick over the sort of around Christmas, they just didn't go out. So, so it was almost like mm-hmm. several of these cities were in a lockdown, even though they weren't because people were either homesick or they were trying to avoid getting sick. Now people are, I mean, people want to get their lives back. Just like, I mean, look, look, what happened here in other countries, right? You know, nobody, nobody's happy. Right. And so if you, and if you've been sick and if you've recovered, a lot of people think, okay, I'm not, I can't get it now. I'll be fine. And so you go out and go back and live your life normally. And so I think, you know, there's some of the bigger stuff like around real estate, you know, the things that are have a, you know, large impact on the Chinese economy. We'll see. But investors, you know, stocks are up. Investors tend to look out six months or longer. And so the assumption mm-hmm. is that, you know, again, you sort of abstract away the pain and suffering, the human level. And six six months from now, the economy should be um, relatively back to normal. And the government, because it's it's so damaged after covid the government's the assumption is the government's going to have to do a whole bunch of things in terms of various friendly and stimulative policies that you know will give it a chance to be sort of going closer to gangbusters by the second half of this year. We'll, we'll see, but I think that's right. what a lot of investors are arguing.
0: Right, it just feels like it's way too early to really gauge anything uh, as we sit here today, and certainly like that first month when COVID is ravaging the country. I wouldn't read anything into that economic data. But
1: um, yeah, I, I I think that's um, but, you know, I mean, it's it just it 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 will come back to some higher level of activity. It has to. But I think, you know, we still also aren't fully grasped the damage that the covid policies have done especially the dynamic zero COVID and just the the challenges that so many levels of the Chinese government have in terms of finances.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, Speaking of the challenges more generally, I want to read one note from Xi's New Year's address. Quote, Since COVID-19 struck, we have put the people first and put life first all along. Following a science-based and targeted approach, we have adapted our COVID response in light of the evolving situation to protect the life and health of the people to the greatest extent possible. Officials in the general public, particularly medical professionals and community workers, have bravely stuck to their posts through it all. With extraordinary efforts, we have prevailed over unprecedented difficulties and challenges, and it has not been an easy journey for anyone. We have now entered a new phase of COVID response where tough challenges remain. Everyone is holding on with great fortitude and the light of hope is right in front of us. Let's make an extra effort to pull through as perseverance and solidarity mean victory. Um, It sort of seems like he's he's declaring victory on the first phase of their COVID policies and also trying to sell the second phase of the COVID policies what did you make of the new year's address in general um so you know i think it
1: was it, it was it was sort of tuned towards listeners who are going through difficult times um mm-hmm. and it was trying to be you know the sort of rally around the we we you know this is a tough time we've been through tough times we will get through this together if everybody works you know works towards the same goal um there's no official and there never will be as long as she's around an official recognition that this was, that there were any mistakes. It's, you know, there's a saying that the party uses to sort of basically to go from victory to victory. Um, th- there's also, uh, you know, the, the, one of the popular members, the, this guy, Chen Linqing, who runs the uh, security services, the legal system, had a meeting after Christmas. Uh, and it was, you know, there's a very brief readout of the meeting of his, the the commission he runs that oversees those sectors Um, but there was, um, it was very clear that it said, you know, the policies, the policies basically before were totally correct. And the policy now is totally correct. Um, Right. And so, you know, and, and, and,
0: and so I think that, um, And if you're a Chinese citizen, it's got to be just head spinning because the the policy before was sacrifice for the good of the state. And now it's almost like an American style personal responsibility approach. And I just I it. It is head spinning. Yeah. It's like the dramatic shift is just crazy still.
1: And the thing, you know, and again, the the reasons they shifted, you know, I, I really don't think they had a choice. Right. And they written about it before where they, they, had it, they had basically they were in an impossible situation. The thing that is so frustrating and is so tragic is that they didn't prepare. Right. right. They you know, they they didn't have enough. For example, there there wasn't enough ibuprofen and paracetamol because during the, the tougher COVID policy period, you couldn't buy that stuff. So pharmacies didn't stock it and the factories didn't make it. And then all of a sudden, everybody wanted it, and no one had reached out to these manufacturers and said, "You know, ramp up ibuprofen production, or you know, or, or ramp up other medicine production that people will need over the next couple months as we reopen." And so, just something didn't something didn't happen in the system, or wasn't allowed to happen, where it was almost like because this dynamic zero COVID policy was it was the policy from on high that to. To even talk about the possibility that it might shift was almost like sacrilegious, or or politically incorrect in a very sort of, in a political system where being politically incorrect has a much higher um, uh, ramifications and much yeah. higher penalties. And so they—that's interesting. Th- yeah. It just—it just was. All, and then all of a sudden, it shifted. And and you know, there are plenty of reports of the local officials I had no idea there was going to be a shift. It was it was news to them, right? I mean, they were all shocked. And so you just end up with a situation where you, you, you know, you, they're just, and it just goes back to this idea. Well, we all thought, you know, the party was, they're like great planners. They planned for a hundred year struggle for the US, right? And, you know, everything is about these long term plans. And yet here, here we have this situation where people are dying because they couldn't even, you know, they, they, they couldn't let the medical system know to get ready.
0: Right. It's, it's really tragic. Well, and and that's what would drive me insane if I had lived through the last couple of years, because this reopening would have been horrible for any country of China's size, and it was horrible at various points in the United States. But when you look back at the amount of money and manpower that was dedicated to dynamic zero COVID, and and juxtapose that with the lack of preparation for... All these challenges that were completely foreseeable, like you, you're just diverting some of that spending to, you know, antivirals or or ramping I, up
1: the vaccination vaccination campaign for all the vulnerable people who are getting really sick now, right? I mean, they, it's just it's just it's mystifying why they didn't prepare in advance. And and the only thing I can come back to is it's just the political the political system is such the political environment, especially around the twentieth party congress, is such that. It was politically impossible for the system to do that because that was not how it just, I don't know. There's a problem with information flow. There's a problem with the decision-making process. There's a problem with sort of how decisions are made and, and that's, we're seeing some of the tragic consequences.
0: Well, okay. So that's a good segue. I'll give you an example of a story about she's damaged credibility We can see very clearly that Xi Jinping is badly wounded in the sense that his prestige and authority have suffered tremendously, said Willie Lam, an expert in Chinese politics at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. His claim that the Chinese system is the best in the world is now subject to serious questioning. Lam said that for Xi, who had previously claimed victory over the pandemic, one, quote, particularly detrimental long-term threat Is that the harm is being felt, quote, not only by ordinary people, not only the disadvantaged classes, but even senior cadres, their parents and retired senior cadres, end quote. So do we have any idea whether something like that is actually going to be a meaningful consequence for Xi and and whether his credibility has has been harmed in the eyes of either fellow party members or Chinese citizens? So, you know, we don't, we, we,
1: I, I don't think there's, there's a whole list of reasons why it should damage his credibility and it should damage the party's credibility. I don't think they can be faulted for the realization that they had to reopen, mm-hmm. um, but they could be faulted for the process of the reopening and the damage that's caused. However, you can, you can sort of look at this, let's say, okay, in a normal political system, therefore the per, the people in charge would somehow suffer consequences, Right. You know, you have to separate the fact that people are angry, including some people who are influential, and what really is going on inside the system. I mean, if this reopening had happened in August, September, uh, before the 20th Party Congress, I think it could have added some potential real political volatility and political variability into um, into that process. And perhaps mm-hmm. the 20th Party Congress would not have been such a victory for Xi Jinping when it comes to personnel where ran the table. Now, though, that he is, you know, we got to the 20th Party Congress. He got all his people where he wanted them for pretty much the most part, if not the entire part, including in the security services, including in the PLA. Where is the I mean, you have to you have to separate out the reasons why there should be problems for Xi with the the mechanics of who and how. So who would cause these problems? How would they happen? And it isn't clear. You know, people, it's really easy to say, well, this is why he should be having problems. And yes, they screwed up, but it's, but it's really, it's a much bigger and more important task is to understand, well, okay, is it really she's fault or is it the entire party? There are other leaders, you know, the, the, the actual COVID, like they have this joint prevention group. I forget the exact name I should have in front of me, you know, that's run out of the state council. Well, who runs the state council? Lika Chang, the premier, right? You have a vice premier. Sun Chun Lan, who's basically been the COVID czar. There's a whole bunch of different places where blame could be apportioned that wouldn't necessarily fall on Xi if you have to get to the point where you apportion blame inside that system. And mm. so I just think that it's it's a, you know, given what we saw at the 20th Party Congress and the outcomes from that Congress, to suddenly two months later turn around and say, oh my gosh, you know, she's in trouble. Again, I look at that as more like, you know, one the framework of analysis is maybe you, using the kind of framework you'd use when you're looking at say a, a Western political system. And yeah. two um, I do worry there's a, just a fair amount of wishful thinking because the alternative, you know, again, you, you would, you would think there should be some accountability. You would, you you would hope that, that this could be a sign that, you know, once again, that maybe he's not taking China in the right direction, which a lot of people do believe not just, you know, forget right. us foreigners inside China, but he's been able to you know, work the system in a way that those people are not able to actually have a lot of influence. And so why does that change? And so it, it's certainly possible, um, but so far, and, and there's been a few op-eds and you know, discussions and nothing I have seen, it doesn't mean I'd see it, but nothing I would have seen is any sign of that and is any sign that there's anything more going on than wishful thinking. Right. Now, I personally hope I'm wrong. I would be I would be the happiest person probably of all of our listeners to be wrong, um, but I just I don't I don't see it. And you know, it, it just goes back to how that system works, and and where is this accountability, and where where is this this pressure going to really come from? Because if there were going to be pressure, it would have happened before the 20th Party Congress.
0: Right yeah well and it's it's interesting because even just a couple months of conversations with you have trained me to look a little bit more skeptically at these stories predicting the Chinese government's downfall or she's individual downfall. I hope I'm not leading you astray. (laughs) Well no, but it's 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 you know, it's fascinating as a newcomer to this world because there's such a dearth of reliable information on the inner workings of the CCP or the sentiments of the Chinese people themselves that the vacuum can be filled by all these different theories and takes and there's not immediate Counterpoints that disprove them, but uh, it's also sort of based on not much substance. No, it's and- it's
1: it's really hard. And then you'll get you'll get you know media reports where some anonymous source said something, and you know you think okay, well you have to trust that source, but well, you know there could also be somebody who doesn't like Xi Jinping who's leaking to the Western journalists and and sort of helping shape this narrative. It, we just it's really really hard, and you know for me. I go back to. I remember when I was in grad school in the early '90s. I'm dating myself, um, and my I, I did a master's. Basically, my focus was Chinese politics, and my professor, my advisor, was um, this person named Alice Miller, who worked in the U.S. government for a long time, looking at like first Soviet and then then PRC elite politics. And one of the classes they taught was was part of it was basically read, and this was like '93 '94, reading Western media reports about PRC politics and then critiquing it. And I remember. There was, It was great because back then, you know, Jiang Zemin had been in power. He'd taken over after 1989. He'd been in power for a few years. And there are all these reports that he was a potted plan. He was going nowhere. He had no power base. And yet, you know, you turned out that he became really one of the most powerful figures and, and was even more powerful than, than Xi Jinping's predecessor. You know, he's the one mm-hmm. who just died a, a couple months ago. But my, my, the broader point is I may be too jaded. But been through multiple cycles where you see so and so's in trouble, so and so's weakened, and it's 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 looking through a very um we want I think a lot of people want that because a lot of people, you know, it's it's one way that sort of, okay, then if, if if she's in trouble, then maybe the party's in trouble, then maybe China will change in ways that are less scary or less problematic for the US or the yeah. West. I mean, but, the last but there's five there's years. a difference between what you hope for, what you're projecting, as opposed to what you're actually, what's actually going on. And and one of the right. things I've struggled with is, is and I, I again I could be too jaded. Is just the the challenge of of separating out those two and focusing on what really looks like is going on versus what your maybe your personal preference is.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, and I I certainly identify with anybody who wishes for a change. The last five or six years have been pretty unsettling. And the last three years have been mishandled, and the reopening hasn't been handled all that well either. So, uh, I understand the frustrations, but we'll we'll wait and see as to whether any of that actually matters. Um, but for now, I have one pretty low stakes implication of the reopening. Uh, I'll read from Racing News 365. On Monday, we revealed that just events promoter of the Chinese Grand Prix is intent on hosting a 2023 edition of the race on the originally scheduled date of April 16th. According to sources, the go ahead to negotiate for the return of the event with Formula One management was granted during a high level meeting convened today in Shanghai. Racing News 365 understands that the meeting was chaired by Chinese Communist Party secretary and member of the Politburo, Chen Jining, who plans to showcase the Grand Prix as a return to sporting normality and international acceptance for the country. China lists all quarantine restrictions for incoming travelers on January 8th, and the Grand Prix would mark the first major international sporting event in the country since the Winter Olympics in 2022. Um, and I just wanted to add that in as an update to something we discussed a couple months ago. I, I mentioned it on the podcast and said it seems impossible that the F1 race could actually go forward in Shanghai, given the COVID restrictions. Right. Um, and now it, it's unclear as to whether it actually will go forward, but the Chinese government definitely wants it to happen. And F1 is listening. Um, it's It's hard to sort of like reorient the plans uh this close to everything and and there are concerns about the the spread around china and its implications for drivers but i don't know i'm ready to take the podcast on the road i think it does go forward it's an hour and
1: a half flight for ben from taipei so you guys guys can cover it (laughs) on the scene yeah Yeah. it it could be and he's got Uh, you know it's but i think no it's it would be good if they were able to hold it that that would be um uh, that, again, that would be a very positive sign, a part of the sort of the reopening, the reconnection with the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, exactly, and it, it's encouraging that it's even a possibility. Yeah. Um, so there are silver linings amidst all the the, the chaos right now. Um, to keep it moving, we had some diplomacy news. Wang Yi is now officially the director of the General Office of the Central Foreign Affairs Commission. And Qin Gong is being elevated from the U.S. ambassador in D.C. to the new foreign minister. So I have a very basic question for you about this news. What does the foreign minister do? Why is this significant with Qin Gong moving into that role? Well,
1: I mean, the foreign minister is like the secretary of state. Um, okay. So he he's the he's officially the, the, the top state diplomat, um, Wang Yi, who until recently was the foreign minister, he's now been promoted up into the top communist party position for foreign affairs um so you know wang yi is on the Politburo. Qing gong is on the central committee um you know wang yi is of you know above ching gong in the hierarchy um but from uh, and so there are times when the you know previously the head of the that party office was yang Jiechi. so there were times when like yang Jiechi would meet with Secretary of State Blinken, for example, you were talking about US China diplomacy or uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan, um, but Wang Yi also would meet with Blinken. And, and so it's just, it's just a more of a function of their system where you have the party apparatus and a state apparatus. And they, I mean, they're very mm-hmm. much blended together, but there are these distinctions.
0: In the wake of this announcement, is this was another case where the lack of information created a room for a lot of different theories. I, I saw some people speculating that Chin Gong was sidelined by the Americans while he was in D.C., so that could be bad for U.S.-China relations. And then there were others who were hoping that Chin is a more moderate voice who could be somebody who de-escalates things. Do, do you have a thought on, on what this means for the relationship? Um, I, you know, I, I think that
1: and being ambassador to Beijing or to to D.C. it's a very difficult job. It's a um, it's not a super influential job in terms of you know policy around China from the U.S. is set in the White House. Policy around the U.S. from from Beijing is set um, in Beijing, and so you know I think ultimately, Qin Gong will do what Xi Jinping wants him to do in terms of foreign policy and and mm-hmm. it will follow the direction that is set from the top of the leadership about policy towards the US policies towards towards other countries you know the there's this idea that well, Qing gong didn't get a bunch of access and therefore it was a wasted opportunity because maybe we could have you know built a better relationship and therefore might have accrued some benefit to US diplomacy over time i mean one, i don't look i, I don't think that that it's totally accurate. I think that he had some access. Um, mm-hmm. He also had some, was doing some things that basically were pissing off the White House and other people. And then also, you know, the other issue is why should the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. get more access to officials in the government than the U.S. ambassador to the PRC gets? Because the U.S. ambassador to PRC, Nick Burns, um, is very constricted and limited in who he gets to talk to the PRC government. And so, so there's ah. a fundamental sort of Sort of diplomatic protocol reciprocity issue there. Um, there's also, I think, um, it's not like Xing Gong was not a known quantity to begin with. Um, and I just think there's a little bit of a myth that somehow um, the personal really matters right now. It, it, it certainly, um, you know, the Xing Gong, I, he's he's very personable and good when he wants to be, and he's a very good he's a very good sort of people to people diplomat when he wants to be. I mean, you you tweeted or we talked about how he um, he recently appeared at a Washington Wizards game and uh mm-hmm. you know sunk the free throw it wasn't a pretty shot but it
0: went in well, um, let me ask, did did the wizards <laughs> convince him to leave the united states forever a one one night with the washington no that wizards. would have been the Is commanders that, that would have been
1: that would have been hanging <laughs> out with like with like uh Carson Wentz and and, and, oh and Dan God. Snyder. And he would have been like, oh my God, this place is falling apart. I got to get out of here.
0: Um, <laughs> An the, afternoon <laughs> at the worst stadium in America. It was very impressive that yeah. he. And he's also,
1: he's, he's also shown up at, um, uh, hockey, the Capitals games. And I think there's the, 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 I don't know if it's the embassy or the sort of some, some organ in the, the PRC government has, I think spent money sponsoring events at like they do like a new year's event at the, um, what do they call it here? Sorry, the Capital One Arena is that? Okay. Is that the, yep. Right. So, so, um, but it was good, and, he, and you know, we talked about before, right? I mean, there is a history here when, when the Wizards used to be the Bullets. The Bullets went to China in what, like seventy-eight or
0: seventy-nine?
1: There's probably some YouTube video of the Bullets' uh, visit to China. <laughs> we could dig yeah. up. Yeah,
0: exporting West Unseld outlet passes. Yes, I, I like that. But, but um, so,
1: but so, but so, so Chingo, So anyway, though, so back to the back to the question though, is I think that. Um, you know, and Gong has been on this, you know, he wrote he wrote a nice I mean, a couple of an op-ed in The Washington Post yesterday. It was sort of a and he's tweeted sort of nice things about Americans. And, you know, the the Chinese are they're trying on every level to, I think, reset, you know, mm-hmm. as they re are reengaging with the world as they come out of their COVID policies. They're trying to sort of reset some of the relationships. Um, it, it, what is from everything I can see? And again, this is what's public and just folks i talked to the reset is a surface level repositioning it's not an actual substantive shift in
0: some of their policies right and changing what they say not what they do
1: right and 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 so or how they say it or the tone Mm -hmm. but so the fundamental things and especially when it comes to the u.s china relationship the fundamental structural issues are there there isn't no there are no signs of any shifts on the chinese side and and so um so the back to your question you know there's a lot of been a bunch of reports about oh if only the US had been nicer to Ching Gong then things could be better again i you know i'm not really buying it i mean and again i don't yeah. i don't i think that ching gong is a fairly well-known quantity i don't i don't know that whining and dining him and being super nice to him would have necessarily given us a lot more insight or a lot more future access than what the US officials would normally get When he's foreign minister, just because it's they're U.S. officials. Right. Right. Because it's, you know, the kind of environment we're in, it's not like, oh, I'm going to call my buddy Chin. Right. And we're going to go have some whiskeys and solve the problems. Right. I think we'd like to think that's the way it works, but that that's not how the system works right now.
0: And it's probably accurate to say that China wants to revert to what the relationship with the United States looked like. Five or six years ago. Uh, but the reality is one of the reasons they're in a different place is because the Chinese government under Xi has been pretty combative. And um, it's another indication, though, that there there are real consequences that the CCP is experiencing at, as a result of all of the economic slowdown domestically and then, you know, the sanctions are harmful and so i i don't blame them for trying to change no
1: and and, you know they're they're, they've been for a few months now they've been really trying to push on this idea of finding back channels finding people you know it's sort of the kissinger model um finding you know someone or some group that can help sort of be the back channel sort of sort of intermediary to help them which
0: worked for many many years
1: Right. But the challenge the challenge is that's great. Talking is fine, but the challenge again goes back to if the if the back channel private position of the PSR government, PRC government, is the same as the public one, which is effectively all the problems of the relationship are the fault of the U.S. And everything will be fine if the US returns to the correct course and takes the correct attitude, it doesn't matter who the intermediary is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And and so that's where Again, we can hope that maybe there'll be some shift, some ability to so, to have some shifts, some more positive trajectory the relationship. But again, so far, and, and this goes back to the question about Xin Gong and why there, there isn't any indication that, and Wang, you know, he he gave a he gave a, a talk on Christmas Day, and then he wrote an a, an essay in the sort of the most important journal for the for the Communist Party or the Central Committee called Qiu Shi, Seeking Truth, um, sort of effectively laying out the achievements of the foreign policy or, you know, Xi Jinping thought on diplomacy and and sort of what the, what the priorities are going forward. And, you know, when it comes to the U S when it comes to stuff like Russia, there's no indication from a, from a public perspective of any sort of a shift. Mm-hmm. And so it's more like, okay, do, can they find the people or convince enough people that we're reengaging, we're back, we've changed our tone, things are different. We should sort of figure stuff out. And then are there going to be people in the U.S. government or around the U.S. government who say, this is different now. We can go back. We can fix these things. And, and I think that's, that is under there, – there's, there's a lot of efforts around that from, from both sides. We'll see how far they go because I, I really fear that the disappointment is going to be when the realization comes that actually the Chinese side, they're not offering anything substantive in terms of a shift. It's right. more like and- this is how bad it could get you know, we've waited you out. It's basically like the Chinese have just kept telling the U.S., you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and hoping that the U.S. gets exhausted or enough people say, this is crazy, we have to to fix it. And then the U.S. makes the moves to fix it.
0: And and the U.S. is less receptive to the Kissinger-type diplomacy that maybe happened over the last 20 years or so. Today, more people in Washington look Skeptically at messages that China is changing, yeah. and 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 that's not America's shift. I, I think a lot of that is related to actions that she has taken. Well, it's the just West, yeah. No, the, the world the world
1: has changed. China has changed. It's just it's a it's a the relationship has changed. The relative power balance in the relationship has changed. I mean, it's just it's just a it's a different era, as she right. keeps saying. It's a new well,
0: era. Speaking of a different era, we'll close with this TikTok which continues to make me feel 80 years old. Um, (laughs) From CNN Business, TikTok user data from two journalists who worked for the Financial Times and BuzzFeed was accessed while ByteDance employees were investigating potential employee leaks to the press, according to the company. The employees involved, two based in the United States and two in China, were fired following an investigation conducted on behalf of the company by an outside law firm the CEOs of TikTok and ByteDance revealed to employees in two separate emails Thursday. And then from CNBC, President Joe Biden approved a limited TikTok ban last week when he signed the 4,126-page spending bill into law. The ban prohibits the use of TikTok by the federal government's nearly 4 million employees on devices owned by its agencies with limited exceptions for law enforcement, national security and security research purposes. Um, So it is now banned among government employees, at least on government devices. And the scandal with the TikTok user data and tracking journalists, it was slipped in right before Christmas, like an all-time news drop and, I will be very interested to see how the United States government responds here. Um, but again, we're looking at a government influenced entity. I mean, they, the Chinese government has a seat on, on one of the boards. Um, and ByteDance is, is the parent company based in China. TikTok is based here. Uh, this is another case where it seems like they're costing themselves the benefit of the doubt with what might have been a more sympathetic audience what do you what, what's your reaction to oh all, all uh, i think
1: it? you're you're are sugarcoating it i mean i think honestly i mean what happened was basically ByteDance, dance tiktok from from china i think from beijing was surveilling american journalists to um tracking their uh, going back and looking at their um, their location data, their whereabouts to see if they could connect those journalists to any TikTok employees in terms of location proximity to then go after those employees as the leakers to these journalists. And so, um, and, and you know, it's like, it's like they did everything they say they didn't do and couldn't do. And it, mm-hmm. you know, turns out they're not only have they lying about it, but they actually did it. And they did it to American journalists. They did it from China. They did it not only from the independent scare quotes or air quotes TikTok, but from ByteDance, which right is supposed to be like a separate entity. So it's like complete. Like it basically blows up the entire facade that ByteDance government relate or TikTok government relations and and PR has been trying to create in DC about this sort of separate entity, separate company, independent stuff. And so I think ultimately it. Um, you know there there the, the there's been a underway you know the 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 Trump ban didn't work the Biden administration took it on to try and work out some sort of a deal um that's been underway for a while there's been you know public reporting that there's been dis, you know disagreements inside the Biden administration about whether it's too you know whether it's too strong or they should soften it um this latest revelation i mean again you pointed out it, it's not a coincidence that it came out right before christmas right um is like like it, I think it's going to be nearly impossible for the sort of the the softer the 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 folks in the Biden administration arguing for sort of a more um, a, a, a sort of a better deal for TikTok to get their way now, and I yeah. think it it really is more likely going to lead to um, some sort of a a forced sale. Or worse for TikTok in the US, because I mean, what they did, it doesn't matter, you know, they hired, I think they've hired a big DC law firm, and they did this, quote unquote, independent investigation, and they put out this apology. But again, it's like, okay, but you said you didn't do this, and you couldn't do this. I mean, you've been lying. It's just like, it's, it's like, it completely destroys any remaining credibility that these, that this, these folks had in any quarters of the US government, they don't have it on Capitol Hill. Right, but they were still in parts of the, the Biden administration. They were willing to talk to them and sort of maybe take them at you know work out a deal. I think this makes that nearly impossible now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I do as well. And and credit to the the legal advisors that had them trying to bury this a couple days before <laughs> Christmas. They they didn't do it on actual Christmas Eve at like eleven thirty. Well, that was PM. a Saturday. <laughs> that would have
1: been a little too obvious, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. They did the best they could. Um. Yeah, I mean, my feeling on all of it is that a it it's inevitable that'll it will be banned eventually, and if you're trying to make the argument that you should ban it based on prior actions of TikTok or ByteDance leadership, I think that case gets a little bit thin. But if you're asking whether it's a good idea to have the most influential social media app in America be controlled by a hostile foreign power or semi hostile foreign power like that's a much simpler question with a pretty clear answer so
1: and, and, and that is where this latest revelation really blows up the argument that they that the Chinese side didn't have any influence right or couldn't do these things with with the app and, and so that so again you just like p- responsible policymakers can't give the company the benefit of the doubt at this point e- even if they thought they could three weeks ago. And so yeah. that really puts t- TikTok by dance in a tough spot. But again, you know it is unfortunate that you know the the TikTok is a is a the biggest sort of cultural technology like media export success from the PRC ever. Right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's an amazing product. I I hate it. I you know I don't like our kids. Using it because not because of the (laughs) China connection, because it you can really just sort of see their brains melting as they watch it. Um,
0: (laughs) But I've experienced the same. Yeah.
1: I mean, we all, you know, but um, I I think that ultimately, you know, the US need shouldn't be dealing with this on a sort of an ad hoc company specific basis. The US needs some sort of, you know, body of data privacy law like the EU has, or frankly, like the PRC has to sort of deal with these issues on a, on a more than just a case by case basis. Cause there's another Chinese app that it's not the same as TikTok, but it has the Trump administration also went after it. And it has a lot of potential problems too, in terms of influence and information controls and censorship, which is WeChat. Mm-hmm. And, and so, the, so, so it's just, but it's unfortunate. Again, it goes back to sort of the broader, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that these apps, you know, the U S and China relations and it's such that, that, that these apps really, face so much pressure in this country but we have to remember or i'll just ask a question our listeners which u.s social media app is big in china <laughs> yeah. and and why Don't hold your because, breath on an answer there and, and why because the chinese look at them as having all sorts of potential national security risks and the ability to be manipulated from the u.s side etc cetera, etc cetera. so so the chinese policymakers. Look at these apps in a certain way and understand the potential risk. So why would we then assume that that's not how they look at the apps when they're when the Chinese apps that are right. then operating the U.S. The I mean, this is the this is the dilemma and the and sort of the really sort of bad um sort of cycle we're in. But you also you can say it's bad and it's a dilemma, but you also have to deal with reality.
0: Yeah, I mean it's tricky because as far as reciprocity is concerned, we don't want to just use China's behavior to justify anything that the United States will do, because I, I'm yes, a supporter I of free market principles and openness. And I think that will serve us well over the next 50 years, um, including in the competition with China. But at the same time, where you draw the line is when there is a real threat. And I, it's interesting because I think a lot of the band discussion centers on the the dangers of TikTok as a surveillance tool, and they were surveilling a reporter who's done a lot of great work on this, Emily yeah, Baker White. More
1: than one, but yeah, she's done great work.
0: Yeah, all year, and um, alongside that, though, it's it's the ability to pull the levers to promote certain news stories and de-emphasize other stories yeah. that would concern me as like the the foremost long term threat, and I don't even know if that. TikTok has done that on a meaningful scale, but it's a risk to allow. Well, but, um, but if you're if you're
1: if if if, if sort of look at the worst case scenario, and you're a hostile actor and you have this platform that you can use when you really want to use it, that's the kind of lever. I mean, and th- this is again, this is this is sort of I think where if if you're like the folks who are looking at it from an national security perspective, where sort of they play out the scenarios. Certainly, it's not something you use every day. You right. would use it when it mattered, or at a moment in the relationship or at a moment of crisis when you wanted to do something right, and so then the question is you know and, and so then you have to go back to i mean we know that any social media company can can influence the content people see I mean look at Facebook, look at Instagram you know youtube, etc. so the mm-hmm. question then ultimately goes back to can you can you trust the intentions and can you trust the promises? Of the other, of the other company. And this goes back to the beginning of this discussion, which is what happened with these reporters. Again, it's, it's not just that this was bad. It's just basically they did everything they said they couldn't and wouldn't do. Right. So there's zero, they have zero credibility and you just cannot with a straight face argue that you can believe anything they say going forward. And so that, that's what's tragic for the folks at TikTok and ByteDance who actually, I think some of them were sincerely trying to reach a deal.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm sure there were elements of the company that thought that there's some sort of compromise or solution that would make this clean for everybody.
1: It's it's a disaster for the company.
0: Yeah. Well, I I don't imagine this will be the last we hear of the TikTok controversy in the months to come. So we'll continue monitoring the situation. Um, And for now, Bill, it's been great to get back together. I will post a link to the tweet of Chin Gong's free throw in the show notes, along with all sorts of other links that we have discussed on this episode. Uh, And I look forward to keeping it rolling in 2023.
1: Absolutely. Me too. Happy New Year, everyone. And uh, uh, it's uh, good to be back. I missed you. All right. And Tashi misses you. we had to do this one remotely but tashi (laughs) tashi sends his regards
0: that's right he's there somewhere all right we'll talk next week we'll come back on our regular schedule we'll be publishing on wednesday